Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq al and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You might miss us on the radio, but you can always go back and check out what you missed. So you'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud. Tune in at Radio Islam USA. Right? Really simple. Okay, uh, family, we have got a great program for you today. Um, Our guest we have joining us on the phone is uh, Rashida James Sadia. Uh, she is the cultural, she's a cultural educator and multidisciplinary artist working at the intersections of social justice, community building, black Muslimness, and multi-faith dialogue. Now, her work explores migration, identity, and the transmission of spirituality through poetry and song amongst Muslim women in West Africa and the American South. Now, what does she do? She is an arts and culture editor for Sapelo Square, which is a digital hub documenting the experience and legacy of black Muslims in America and the creative director of Crossing Limits, a multi-faith nonprofit organization which utilizes poetry as an instrument for social change, highlighting the intersections of faith and social injustice. Welcome to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam. So it is uh, great to have you on the program uh, and to talk. I, I expect that we're going to have a, a wide-ranging conversation, but um, I was really interested in um, addressing uh, civic engagement. and uh, But even before that, to talk a bit first about uh, you recently pre- uh, presented some of your work, uh, Betraying the Spectacle, uh, at Duke University. Could you tell us a bit about that particular work? Well, thank you for having me. Um, so Betraying the Spectacle really sort of started out with my own story. Um, I relocated to the South. Um, from the north, um, and although I've lived in Washington D.C., and some people believe that to be the south, um, I like to say <laughs> it's true that some people lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really was sort of immediately impacted, or felt that my identity was shifting in the south because I was sort of existing in a space in which the Muslim community was very small um, and outside of my norm, especially living in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, where there are various Muslim restaurants and boutiques and cafes and, you know, hair salons, and folks are giving you the greetings of assalamualaikum, whether they're Muslim or not, and sort of this long history um, of Muslims in that space Mm -hmm. and relocating to a space where my identity was very foreign. And so it sort of started with me unpacking my own experience and wondering how other Black women, whether they were born in the South or relocated recently through... due to employment or for academic reasons, how they were sort of dealing with racism, black womanhood in the American South, and also gendered Islamophobia. So the project uses ultimately photography and first-person narratives and poetry to sort of create a space for black Muslim women to speak for themselves. Hmm. Now, with regard to the change, um, was was there a cultural difference just in terms of mannerisms that you first noticed? Well, I think there are people within sort of the history of the black Muslim community 
difference often, right? Or when we're sort of talking about the pioneers um, of our community. And I think it was more about sort of experiencing the sort of reality that so much work had sort of existed or had been done in these spaces in which I lived before Mm -hmm. that I wasn't necessarily actively being aware of. You know, sort of the comfort that I had or the fact that Muslims were holding, you know, or teaching or the principals of schools or working at the bank, sort of this public um, presence really sort of impacted how comfortable I was in that space and how people were comfortable with the Muslim community. And the place that I relocated to, um, actually in Durham, North Carolina, mm-hmm. there is like a really beautiful and active Black Muslim community here, but I'm centered in sort of the Bible Belt, right? And so I think Islam is still sort of outside of the framework um, of what we think about when we think about the South. Mm, so that so that uh, familiarity that you um, that you came from in the North in places like Brooklyn or D.C. where or even Philly, right, where you would receive the greetings from folks, maybe Muslim, you know, may not there may not be. Uh, so that's something that's definitely uh, that's definitely not present in in the Bible Belt outside of those. Uh, places that are specifically Muslim. Yeah, because I think for most people, when they think about the South and they sort of think about prominent uh, or active um, and very public Black Muslim communities, the first place that comes up is Atlanta. Right. You know, but Atlanta, does, it's not, you know, there's not in sort of in capital it does not contain like the entire state of Georgia, right? So it's just mm-hmm. Atlanta. So when you sort of move out of that, space, I think in many aspects in Georgia, you still sort of find um, this isolation, I think, for many Muslims um, in the South. So there are lots of people that I've interviewed where there's one mosque, there's no mosque, mm-hmm. you know, something they've decided to convert, and they're the only Muslim in their town, mm-hmm. or they're driving two or three hours to sort of participate um, in community and spiritual engagement with other Muslims. And so I think it really is sort of different depending upon where you live. But when you're coming from the North, because I think the North has such a history um, in the Black Muslim community, you know, places like Chicago and Detroit Mm -hmm. uh, and Philly, um, that you definitely sort of notice the difference. Mm. And I think this realization or observation lends itself to this idea of civic engagement or uh, the presence in the public space. Are these places in the South, are they behind the North? Yeah, I think there's definitely the sort of process of it being more public, I think, in certain places in the North. You know, it isn't rare to sort of meet someone in the South who has no reference at all um, for Muslims or no reference at all for, for even like sort of the religion of Islam. And I think in my experience um, in the North, someone always has like a Muslim cousin, you know, there's, there's always some sort of, you know, sort of a large or small connection to knowing the basics. Um, And I think that's, that's different here. So it isn't rare for me to sort of go to a restaurant and order something and have to really sort of explain like why that thing can't have pork. Right. You know, you know, so these little like, sort of small things that in my experience in the, in the North, people 
have a basic level understanding, I think, of Muslims, like what we consume, what we don't consume, a basic understanding of like why people cover or that, you know, we sort of congregate for spiritual reasons on Friday, because there's a reference there. I think there's a longer public history and connection to my project. I find this really interesting because if we sort of think about the nation of Islam, um, Elijah Muhammad, Claire Muhammad, like these are people who are born and raised in the South. Mm -hmm. There are many people that we sort of look at as sort of like the pioneers of um, reestablishing, I guess, sort of a contemporary um, expression of Islam in the U.S. that are from the South. But when we're sort of talking about Muslims, I don't really think that we consider the South or the experience of folks here. And so for me, it's not just about sort of the major cities. Um, actually, when I started this, I wasn't interested in uh, interviewing women who lived in Atlanta. And that doesn't mean that they haven't experienced um, possibly discrimination due to being both black and Muslim, but I feel that there's sort of a public um, expression um, of Islam in that space in which their existence is completely different than someone living in Monk's Corner, South Carolina which mm. most people have never even heard of Monk's Corner, South Carolina, right? And so yeah. it's just sort of a different, there's a different way in which they need to and have to exist, and that comfort level um, is really different. So I think the South being sort of known as the Bible Belt mm-hmm. um, hasn't changed. And the reality is that you're sort of navigating being a woman, being Muslim, and being Black. And so these sort of layers of identities um, in a space that's still struggling Um, with systematic racism or systematic violence, and also still struggling with sort of accepting that not everyone is Christian. Yeah, yeah. Now, you use poetry um, as a means to uh, incite or uh, shed light on on social change. So as as a Black Muslim woman, along with your own voice, are there any other voices that you feel are reflecting or expressing the uh, complexity of existence uh, that that identity brings? Yeah, I really like the work of Kibala, who is a Muslim poet of the African diaspora, currently living um, in the UK, Sukina Douglas. Uh, I mean, there, there are countless people, I think, that are doing really amazing work. But I think one of the things that's really important that seems to be happening right now is that whether it's sort of poetry or folks working on their dissertation or writing books, that there seems to be this increase in black women and black Muslim women uh, being really committed to the necessity of like writing down their stories Mm -hmm. and writing down the stories of sort of the communities that they're a part of. Um, And for folks who aren't comfortable with sort of writing, I think there's also this increase in people sharing poems um, and sharing books or sharing why this particular book is important to them. And so I always find that language amongst black women has been really important and sort of like an agent of resistance and the way that people have been able to sort of like document their history and the possibility of where they're going. And so for me, um, using creative literature in this project was really, really important because I find that if you share uh, someone's personal narrative, it's possible that you may have someone in the audience um, to sort of contest that, right, or maybe doubt that that's mm-hmm. their experience or that it is this sort of trying thing um, existing in the South in certain spaces. But I find that sort of shifting some of the narratives within my project into poetry, um, that it creates a different 
platform for people to engage the stories. Mm. You know, either they're sort of like into it or they're not, but we're not really engaging with this idea of whether it's true or not. Uh, we're able to sort of engage this as a, a piece of wisdom mm-hmm. um, and sort of an artifact of this person documenting who they are. And I think that's really important for Black women to be able to have and create platforms for themselves where they're speaking for themselves and they're defining who they are and what they are on their own terms. Mm. Does the uh, does the fact that the delivery uh, is is in a poem, the idea is in is embedded in poetry? Do you think that there is a, a difference between, or that it impacts the palatability of it, um, of of though of an idea that may seem foreign uh, to others, where you say some might hear, you may have a person who contests um, uh, an idea coming from uh, directly from an individual. Do you think it's different when the idea is, you know, it's kind of divorced from uh, from an individual and just put out as a piece of poetry? Do you see a difference between the two? Um, I think for my project, I don't divorce uh, sort of the women who have honored me with sharing their stories. I don't divorce their experience um, by using poetry or sort of transmitting some of their words into prose and poetry, I'm, I'm pretty much, in most cases, exactly using um, what's been said to me. Okay. And so before I share the poem, there's sort of information about this person, their background, what their experiences, and like why I decided um, to highlight their story. So for instance, there's a black Muslim woman who is actually Haitian, um, who's a part of my project who lives in Atlanta, right? And so she sort of expresses this complexity of feeling that anyone can be Black and Muslim except Haitians. Mm. And so this is like this really interesting story for me. Um, and this has to do with the fact that she feels that people sort of associate Haitians um, with voodoo or like being Catholic, right. like the idea of somebody being Muslim and Haitian. It's like the sort of unheard of. Mm-hmm. thing. And so she feels like she's always sort of navigating, not just being Black and Muslim, but even within the Black community, finding space for herself, where she's sort of fully accepted as a Muslim woman. And I think for Muslims, hearing her story and also for people outside of the community, it doesn't sort of divorce her um, her experience or her challenges by using poetry, but I think it sort of creates a space where people more often than not, have sort of walked away from this project and said, that was really beautiful. Mm. That was really beautiful, or that made me think um, about that person in a different way. And I think for me, I don't feel that um, I need to use this project to prove or document that black women are human um, and have feelings and should be heard. and so for me, I feel like it's just really important to create a space for people to speak for themselves. I think that that doesn't happen very often. Um, and being able to do that and being able to do that, I think, in a creative way sort of expands um, the way we're able to engage the work. And so the fact that she's still struggling is there. What those challenges are is clear and blatant. Um, one of the things that she sort of shares in her story um, I think it's last year that one of the major um, parks in Atlanta that they had to sort of decline a request from the KKK to burn a cross in the park. What? 
you know, and this is in 2017. Um, mm. She's also possibly, you know, dealing with, you know, these things that are happening right now socially, where Haitians may be removed um, from the U.S. because she's not a citizen and here on a visa. And so there are all of these complexities that come up in her story, right? So being mm-hmm. black and being Muslim, um, being an immigrant, uh, the possibility of being removed from a place that you've called home for years that your children call home. And so I think just sort of using a creative lens helps people to sort of put their social um, and like cultural perceptions to the side mm-hmm. and to just hear it almost as a piece of art. Um, but, you know, although it's in this creative lens, this is someone's real life. And so I definitely try to um, repeat that constantly, that this is someone's life. You know, this is not just a project, right. but people are actually experiencing these things on a day-to-day basis. So there's there's no disconnect between the individual and the narrative uh, or turning that into art. So, yeah, that, that okay, all right. Uh, and audiences... Um, Audiences are more receptive or have been receptive uh, of hearing those those narratives uh, transferred into art. Yeah, I think the photographs um, of women just sort of in their daily lives or with their children or gardening, um, in addition to sort of sharing these personal narratives, I think it creates a different picture. I think for some people that, I mean, there actually was a gentleman um, after my lecture who said, I've never seen a Muslim woman present anything before. Wow. Which was like this really shocking thing, because for me, that's the norm, right? But for many people, that is not the norm. And so I think being able to sort of create a space where I'm not necessarily sort of centered on trying to shift the perception of what people may have of Muslims or black women or black women who happen to be Muslim. But I'm more so focused on the reality that I think it's really rare that first and foremost, that black women are even included in conversations about Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, that has sort of shifted who we think about when we're sort of imagining or talking about Muslim women um, in an American sort of like narrative or within the media often lacks the sort of expression or existence of the black Muslim woman's experience. And so I'm really just centered on creating a space to share these stories. But these stories are not centered on sort of like proving that someone's sort of like human. And I think that that shifts the aspect people sort of talking about how they feel spiritually and that like becoming Muslim was not just sort of this sort of political um, act of resistance which is often associated with sort of like the reason as to why black people become Muslim. And so I think creating a space for people to have those conversations um, by using poetry for me has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So when, when it comes to how uh, black women in particular are presented, uh, I believe, um, I think one of the things I think I read from you is that uh, they talk about, talk about the presentation of uh, black women as a superwoman, or um, what was what was the, what was the the contrast of that? There was another um, category, basically just 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 this really simple uh, dichotomy. It lacked any um, uh, any complexity or the possibility of uh, vulnerability or or humanness. Period. Well, I think there's sort of this duality of sort of envisioning um, black women, you know, whether they're Muslim or not. Um, 
as being sort of superhuman, but also like human beings that are incapable of ever being the victim. Right. Right. And so I think there's sort of this space in which um, women are not often able to express how they feel, sort of express their joy, their happiness, but also the ways in which they feel sad, the ways in which they're sort of addressing and trying to heal um, from trauma, um, whether that's something that's being imposed upon them, their children, their loved ones. And so I think there's this weird space in which black women are not able to exist fully as human beings. There was an incident here two years ago where a black Muslim woman um, was being followed um, by two men actually in Durham, North Carolina, and they were yelling, uh, they were yelling slurs at her. And so she, she sort of got to this point where she felt really nervous and she had her children in the car. And so she pulled over um, hoping that they would just sort of pass her and they didn't, they stopped and I remember the video. She said, you know, she made dua, she made a prayer, she had a register, and she stepped out, sort of say, you know, like, leave me alone. I don't want this to sort of escalate, and my children right. are in the car. But also this moment where she, you know, realized that the things they were yelling at her, they made this assumption that she wasn't from here. Right. She was from another country, and they're sort of yelling that she needs to go back to her country, and she needs to sort of take off her scarf. And so I remember when she posted this to social media that people were saying, oh, finally, a black woman who won't take mm -hmm. this abuse, and she will stand, stand up for herself. But I found that in this sort of engagement, no one fully acknowledged her as a victim. Hmm. Something about her blackness meant that she could somehow take on two men. Right. And she could sort of be the victor. Um, but something about other Muslim women is that, you know, they can be the victim. They can sort of be impacted emotionally and physically by threats of violence. But black women are superhuman, you know, and black women are going to sort of, despite the fact that she stood for herself and her children, she was afraid. Right. You know, she was scared. And I don't really think that there was sort of this place actually within and outside of the Muslim community for her to say that. Or for people to even sort of see that and say, like, how do you feel? Are you okay? What do you need? Instead, there was sort of just this kudos of like, oh, finally, they've encountered the right Muslim woman to teach them a lesson. This is not, this should not be her place, right? Uh, right. This should not be something that she's experiencing. And so I think women are always sort of in that space of struggling to sort of maintain um, their humanity and not be hardened by many of the things that are happening in the world and also not sort of step into this over glamorization of black girl magic because that also isn't a place that fully recognizes humanity. Hmm. The over glamorization of it. Can you can you expound on that a little bit? Because that, that certainly is a term that is, um, I think many see as being uh, empowering, um, but is, is, it, is it something that is also uh, maybe negates uh, that vulnerability or humanness, or uh, is, it in a, is it a phrase of exceptionalism? Well, I think for me, and one of the reasons that I'm using um, sort of creative literature in this, in this project is because I feel like language is really important. And I think, you know, 
the way in the ways in which black people use language often is just amazing. There's a, there's a way in which like we're very creative in like how we speak and how we define and how we create words for things. And so I think there's a long history of sort of creating, inventing, uh, and reshaping language to heal ourselves. You know, and sometimes it's not really centered on healing. Sometimes it's just putting a Band-Aid over the wound. And so I think in many ways when we're sort of highlighting black girl magic because someone has achieved something um, or because someone has been successful despite the odds, I think there's less of a focus on what the odds are. Um, I think Mm -hmm. it becomes a platform that's really centered on climbing up the ladder but not the experience of falling, hmm. you know, not the experience of the things that people typically have to sort of like go through um, to get to that point. It isn't centered on the fact that folks struggle with depression or uh, mental wellness, um, that people are sort of navigating uh, structural racism, that people are navigating gender violence. And so I don't think it's often a place for folks to say, like, yes, I achieved this. But here are, like, all the other things that I'm still negating or struggling with. I think it's also sort of this act of creating pride, which is really important, but it's a pride that's only centered on material success. What, what are we saying when we constantly use this language? And are we sort of creating a platform where people feel that they need to reshape themselves to sort of fit into the restraints of how we're defining black girl magic. Hmm. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, to mention structural racism, uh, any of the uh, systemic uh, impediments that exist uh, and that those things are not, there's no light really being shed on those uh, issues. It's just a matter of you finish the race, uh, but not really about addressing, uh, addressing the, those issues that are unfair uh, th- that need to be, you know, uh, er- erased or reformed. Um, I think that's a very, a very interesting observation. Very interesting observation. So when it comes to uh, black women uh, and women uh, in general as a commodity regarding uh, uh, regarding politics, when it's time for uh, the elections, like our recent midterm elections, you know, we just came through. Uh, there are a lot of pundits that were talking about um, the importance of having. Uh, particularly on the Democratic side, uh, uh, having black women come out, show up at the polls. So not really addressing their concerns, but certainly uh, realizing uh, their uh, importance uh, as a voting uh, block. How do you respond to this uh, cycle of expectation that's placed on black women to, to be the segment that comes through for, uh, for the, the Democratic Party in particular? I think it's something that's been happening for a while. I think it's sort of, in some cases, I think it's creating a better platform for organizers who happen to be, you know, women and who happen to be black, black women. Mm. Um, And I think sort of mobilizing their community um, and creating spaces to sort of educate folks on who's claiming they're going to do what or, you know, what the issues are, what we should be voting for and against. I think that that aspect isn't something that's new. Um, But I do think we're also sort of shifting in this space um, 
that's very much sort of connected to this idea, right, of like black girl magic, where you also see people saying, trust black women. Mm-hmm. And I think trust black women is important, but we're also sort of seeing this phrase as it pertains to sort of like political and social movements. And I think women are being sort of called to do something, but often finding, I think, especially within the black community, um, that their needs, their challenges, their hardships, uh, their desires for themselves, their families, and their community um, are not being honored. Mm. Okay. And so I think there's, in many ways, there sort of is this, like, usury um, of sort of getting black women uh, to speak, to help canvas, um, to utilize their ideas, to sort of bring people in, um, to engage them uh, in the act of voting and sort of, like, what it means to be informed and a part of civic engagement. But if there's some aspect of success, I think in many ways, black women are left behind. And Mm -hmm. so I think historically speaking, um, up until now, I think there's this way in which black women are often working um, and putting their sweat and their tears into movements, into uh, political policies and folks who are running for office. And often finding that these things rarely impact or service their own community. Right. And right. I think that's something that we're still sort of struggling with. Um, and I think it's it's a large thing to have placed on your back. And, and to right? continue and I think to also see there's this. this sort of dynamic where we're we're defining what's the percentage of like women who voted for Trump and, you know, what are the percentage of women who voted for, you know, another candidate um, in other aspects of, you know, sort of like politics, where I think there's also this really interesting way in which we're really analyzing what women are doing. Hmm. And, we're and really maybe not looking at like, why. You know, like who, who these who these women are and like, did right. you do it the good way or the right way? But I think that people are really sort of like sacrificing um time, energy, and skill set to be involved, you know, sort of like thinking and hoping that sort of this act of voting is going to have a trickle-down impact in their community. Um, And I think we haven't really seen that yet. That's a great point. We're going to pick up on that point, this act of voting, because, uh, yeah, we've got to delve into this. Uh, So can you hang on a second? Let's can we go a little bit longer? We're going to take a quick break, though. Um, sure. Yeah, so uh, Radio Islam family, stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back. The Syrian Community Network with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at Syrian Community Network. 
www.ebenezerchurch.org. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38, and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us on social media. Follow, like our pages. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA, at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You'll find us on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcast, basically. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. Our guest today is Rashida James Sadia, uh, a cultural educator. She is the uh, arts and culture editor for Sapelo Square, as well as the creative director of Crossing Limits, which is a multi-faith nonprofit organization um, using poetry as an instrument for social change. And we have been talking about the complexities of uh, the black Muslim women, uh, woman identity uh, and the narratives, uh, the importance of that narrative being one that comes from the one who is being defined. Um, and before we went to break, we we're talking, well, the phrase civic engagement came up. And I think this is a really important uh, topic, uh, particularly because there's a really uh, myopic, there's, there's a very narrow view of what civic engagement is generally, and it's uh, it kind of expresses itself in the act of voting. So, um, Sister Rashida, do you think that that interpretation that is sufficient, um, that civic engagement is just really about the end all be all is just voting? I think we're existing in a time where that's the focus. Um, I don't think it's the best or the full focus um, for communities of color. I think it's really important um, to sort of think about what folks were doing 
before us. And I don't think that this sort of idea of voting was really sort of centered on how we often define it now. I think folks are frustrated and upset and they want change. And so we're kind of utilizing this idea of voting um, in connection to removing one person and, you know, sort of establishing someone else that we believe is better, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is what we've been told, or we really love that speech. But I don't think Mm -hmm. that we're sort of connecting voting to liberation. And I think before us that folks were sort of not just voting um, for candidates, but really sort of thinking about liberation. I think it's really easy to separate those things when you're not contending um, with certain things that existed in the past, although we're still sort of existing within the residue, right? There's still things that we're sort of fighting against. And so I think it's really important to think about civic engagement in communities of color from a place of strategy. And so, like, what were we even doing before, you know, people were campaigning? What were we doing before the ballots were open? And what will we be doing after if we don't get the results that we hoped for? Right, right. So in terms of the just the impact that we have on our beginning on a micro level, you know, uh, in our neighborhoods, um, you know, in our communities, that type of engagement, would you say that that would be not discounting voting, you know, as an act of civic engagement, but just the everyday uh, impact that we have on the micro level? Would you say that those things are being overlooked? I think they're being overlooked, but I also think that there's a way in which we are not sort of taking participation in those activities seriously. And so there's sort of this huge push um, and sometimes even shaming, uh, you know, folks into like, are you voting? Why aren't you voting? Um, And really being persistent about like the act of voting. And although I think voting is extremely important, Mm -hmm. I don't think that we necessarily see this like throughout the year where I don't agree with shaming, but if you sort of like choose to participate in that, Are you, like, sort of encouraging someone to volunteer at the schools in their neighborhood? Are you, like, checking on people that live in your community? Do you know who has food? And do you know who was hungry last night? And so I think they're, like, these things that we're completely capable of doing uh, within our communities and nationally that we often sort of place on just the idea of voting. And I think one of the issues with that is that it's centered on the person that you hope to be elected, right, will sort of get into office and do these amazing things or do all the things that you you hoped for or that you shared. And I think many of these things the people are capable of doing. And if we sort of look back historically, I think people knew they had to do those things. You would vote, but you just sort of could not sit, you know, and wait and hope that things were going to go into a particular direction. Because in many ways, the government and the system didn't really fully recognize you as a human being. And so if you were going to have a school, you had to build that school. If you were going to have books, like the community had to supply those books. And so I think there definitely is a way in which we need to lovingly hold each other accountable um, and really kind of think about the things that we're fed up with or the things that we're exhausted by or the things that we would like to see more of. How are we working to create that in our community? Because that can't be situated just on the act of voting. Mm. I think that completely sort of leaves someone else to do your work. Well, I think especially if you have not had a hand in vetting uh, that individual that's soliciting your vote. Um, 
uh, I, I would begin there. I think that all these things have to take place uh, in, you know, they have to take place uh, uh, concurrently, right? You have to make sure you're operating as a as a as a good neighbor, uh, as a as a good citizen, uh, concerned about the you know the issues uh, on the ground in front of you, but then also understanding that whoever has been in office, whatever the position is, you know we're a nation of you know, folks like to tout that we're a nation of laws, uh, which means that whoever the elected officials are, that they are going to be the ones that determine uh, policy. Uh, mm -hmm. And be and we find ourselves on the receiving end uh, in a, you know, in a in, in a negative uh, uh, manner of speaking. Uh, so for those who don't vote, I would simply say my, my personal opinion is, well, if you don't vote, it's really difficult for me to hear you complain. Right. Because, you know, if 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 you're not. And, th and of course, that also goes back to um, if, if you're going to vote, then that does mean that you should be. It should not just be where you're active at that one time of the year that you are engaged, period. Right. So that whoever is running, that they reflect um, that they have an awareness of what your concerns are, uh, your community concerns are, and that, you know, their election is going to have positive outcomes regarding um, the, the, the policies and laws that come about. So your thoughts, and, and feel free to disagree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I feel that there are a lot of things happening, and so I don't think, I don't think as a person of color, that one can, can can in any way pretend that they don't understand why another person of color would say, I'm kind of done with this. I think that people are exhausted and frustrated. And I think for people of color, and that's within and outside of the black community, mm -hmm. I think there's a feeling that this system isn't working, right? Or the system doesn't fully acknowledge them, right. or the system doesn't fully include them. And I think some people have sort of canvassed, they've worked, they've donated money, they've been in the streets, they've voted, and they feel that they've sort of getting the sort of the same outcome again and again. I don't think it would be wise for us to pretend that we don't understand that. I don't think it would be wise for us to pretend that we don't get that. But I think it's really important to sort of invite those folks to the table, but not from this platform of, if you don't don't participate if you don't vote mm. and things are still crazy you don't have a right to express like your discomfort you don't have a right to sort of express how these things are impacting you mm. because you didn't show up um because i think it's clear like why certain people are not showing up and i don't think that this is the reason for all people but i think voting is really really important but i think it's also important for us to sort of recognize that even a politician with the best of intentions is still entering a broken system. Okay. So there's so much work to do. There's, you know, this is not just about voting. This is not just about sort of electing particular people. It's also about dismantling a system that doesn't honor all citizens, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of work to do. And I think in that context of knowing that it can be difficult even for the person that you elect, right, if they're able to uh find themselves in a place to make change, that you have to put pressure on people, that you also have to continue to mobilize, that you also have to do work. And I think to take that stance, 
I hope that people who take that stance of feeling like maybe you don't have a place to express your discomfort, that you're also encouraging folks to do other things, or maybe you're opening your home or creating a space to sort of like educate people on what's going on um, and what are some things that they can do in addition to voting. Um, I think it's just we're sort of at that point where we really have to have a strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be something that's like includes voting, but also includes other aspects because what's happening time and time again is that we do all the work and like the person gets elected and then certain things don't happen. And then you sort of hear people saying they promised all of these things and they didn't do it. But I think sometimes if we look at some of these things that were promised, Mm -hmm. these are actually things that we could have done ourselves. Mm. These are actually things that could have been accomplished with collective work. And so I do still believe that it's really important um, to be mindful of what the community's responsibility is also. Um, Because certain things are not going to get done or certain things may be at the end of the list. Mm. And there has to be this way in which we're working collectively together. Um, And I think it's, it's important to hold people accountable, but I also feel like you have to hold people accountable with love. I don't think that uh, some of the stern uh, reactions that I've seen, I don't think that that's something that invites someone to the table. And we're definitely at a point where we need like all hands on deck. I I agree with you. I I don't think that being fractured um, helps us in, in any uh, way, shape, uh, form or fashion. Uh, I do, however, think, my my realization is that the system itself uh it's you know it's it's like you don't you can't change the system from the outside um i mean of course there's pressure that that we can that can be brought but laws change by those who are elected and certainly there's a you know the laws have nothing to do with uh community engagement on the ground how we how we uh engage one another and 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 what we look to establish uh, as community members, but it feels, it feels a bit like giving up, um, mm. you know, when people say I'm just, you know, and, and I understand, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm as upset and frustrated as I think as anybody else uh, with regard to certain things that are taking place, you know, in our uh, country today. But I also recognize that me walking away does not it does not uh make me immune to the decisions that are being made by others that are going to impact me uh in the present and also impact those who come behind us so you know what's the old uh definition of insanity right doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different outcome so if if we want a different outcome i think it means that we're going to have to do some things uh, we're going to be have to, we're going to have to was it walk and uh, chew gum at the same time, which means we'll have to definitely work on the community level. But as far as those people who uh, who seek elected office, that means that those people are going to have to, I think, be vetted uh, a bit more and certainly be held accountable for what they ask for. But it's going to also require a level of sacrifice that I don't think we've really seen um, in in the, in the present. Uh, they, um, uh, this present generation uh, with regard to how engaged we are. Because um, mm-hmm. a, a good example would be uh, PTA, uh, parent-teacher uh, night. Not PTA, but, but parent-teacher night at schools. It's in, in a lot of 
uh, inner city schools, it is abysmal the amount, uh, the low rate of turnout. Um, and of course, there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. Uh, it's not just neglect, uh, but the idea of being, being engaged on a full-time basis is not something that is really the norm, and that's really the only thing that's going to be able to, um, uh, that's going to be able to reverse uh, the trend uh, that we've seen. But I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that it's got to be done with love. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's kind of off-putting for folks. Uh, nobody likes to be shamed, um, but, you know. I, yeah, I mean, and I think it's really important what you're saying, and I think I'll just sort of push back a bit where I, I do feel like um, it's not just about vetting people. I think that whoever we believe in, there's ultimately a question mark um, in terms of what they're going to do or what they're going to be able to achieve and how they themselves are going to be able to sort of like move through uh, this system. And so I think holding who we elect, uh, you know, accountable is really p important. Sure. But I think it's also important to kind of think about the fact that ultimately, or in theory, right, these people represent and work for the people. And I do think it's important for people to sort of take that power back, but also to think about, like, what they're capable of doing. I just think this idea of waiting for elected officials uh, to change sort of like the status of your, your condition isn't something that uh, makes a whole lot of sense to me. And so I think yeah. that this is something that has to sort of happen in duality. And I think there are a lot of things that happen on the ground that have impacted laws, right, and that have impacted the system. Sure. And so I think this work can be done inside and outside of the system. And I think it's really interesting that you brought up the sort of, you know, parent meetings and sort of people not being able to be present. I think part of engaging people is also about learning about what they need and also about looking at the past. I think people sacrificed a lot, you know, to protest, to be on the front line, sure. uh, to, you know, sacrifice possibly harm to themselves to go out and vote. Um, some people can't miss a day of work without the possibility of getting fired, right? Or you, so you can't make something because you don't have childcare. Or the time of this PTA meeting means, like, I won't be able to feed my children or, like, I'm struggling because I just got off. And so we're still, people are still sort of, like, not navigating the reality that, like, maybe the PTA meeting needs to be on the weekend. Yeah. Maybe we need yeah. to offer a meal. Maybe we need to offer childcare. Mm -hmm. And so I do think for the people that we feel are sort of, like, not coming to the table because they're frustrated um and even back to this sort of concept of like black girl magic mm -hmm. which sort of this act of like resilience and being super strong can also apply to black men i think we kind of have to understand that people may feel like they want to give up um but how do we sort of bring them back in and how do we help people sort of like work through that? And I think that's something that we really have to contend with mm -hmm. um, because just sort of highlighting that you didn't vote or I think this is sort of like not the brightest thing for you to do um, doesn't really pull the community together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Um, definitely. Am. All right. Last, last question. Give me, I'm going to, I'm going to say a word. I want you to give me your, your thoughts on this word. Votep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the word is votep. So you ah, listeners may not okay. may not be familiar with this word, but I, I saw it uh, uh, on a post. So 
could you could you talk a bit about Votep? <laughs> so I think um, in summary, Votep is sort of this sort of highlighting and calling out. I think folks who are sort of utilizing um, this political push uh, for Black folks to vote and directly connecting that with sort of like your ancestors died for you to have the right to do this and sort of like how dare you not mm. not do it right how dare you not sort of like honor um their sacrifice but also this really interesting way in which like there are tons of other things right that we can sort of associate uh, with our our ancestors and one of the things that was sort of presented was religion mm. um and in the context of religion, sort of not talking about what we sort of know is sort of the prominently discussed religions like Christianity and Islam, um, but more indigenous forms of spirituality. And so the ways in which we're sort of folks are sort of picking and choosing what they want to remember about their ancestors or picking and choosing what they want to honor, but also sort of utilizing that sacrifice to shame others. And I also think this is a really important thing that's sort of missing um, in people that could sort of be identified as a votab, that when they're saying your ancestors died for this, mm-hmm. it completely actually removes the fact that, no, they were, they were, they were killed. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, they, would know prefer, it they would prefer to have been alive. Right. The act of the other, right, or the act of the system, or the act of the person or the group of people who were trying to prevent them from existing in their full humanity, right, or existing in their full citizenship. And so there's so many things that are being left out of uh, that conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to have to hold, uh, hold, hold that conversation, really open that up, uh, maybe for another time. We'd love to have you back on. Um, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, would you tell the Radio Islam family where they can uh, find your work and uh, keep up with you? So I can be found um, at crossinglimits.org and also my writing and my work sort of exploring and documenting um, aspects of art and culture amongst black Muslims within the diaspora can be found on um, com and yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a really a wonderful uh, conversation. Well, thank you. All right, Radio Islam family, we thank you for staying with us for this conversation. And we want to thank our sponsors over at the Zakat Foundation. Thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq el joined by the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Baig. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid, and we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. <laughs>